David Lidas traveled to many of the great cities of South America, but he still prefers his home base in Mexico City. I'm not taking anything away from them, but none of them has made me feel like I made a mistake by moving to Mexico City. He updates us on what you can find this year in the Mexican capital. A summer day trip from Berlin can take you to all sorts of famous places. The historic medieval core is incredibly well-preserved and restored. Or to just enjoy getting outside. That is where you have the Brocken, where the famous witches always gathered. Bring a towel and have a great swim and have a sausage afterwards and then go back to Berlin. German tour guides share their day trip ideas with us. And the head of the Institute for World Literature at Harvard recommends his favorite titles for vicarious travels. Well, I feel very strongly that world literature should not just be something that you need a graduate degree from an Ivy League university to appreciate. Come along, it's Travel with Rick Steves. As one of the biggest metro areas in the Western Hemisphere, Mexico City has a reputation that sets some Americans on edge. Coming up, a New Yorker who moved to Mexico City decades ago updates us on life in the big Mexican capital so that you can come to love it too. Berlin is another powerhouse city that won't disappoint. But sometimes you just want to get out on a day trip into nature and experience more of what's nearby. German guides propose great day trips from their capital. Let's start the hour with a guide to great literary adventures the kind that can help us imagine life in cities all around the world and across the centuries. I'm a big believer in the more you take to your sightseeing, your travels, the more you get out of it. Enjoying a good book before heading off to Europe can enhance your experience. It can enhance it beautifully. Before heading out on a trip, that's what David Damrush loves to do. He explores what great authors have written about the places he's visiting. During the pandemic, David's passion for literature from around the world turned into extensive armchair travels. As chair of the Department of Comparative Literature at Harvard University, David put together a list of 80 works that he recommends. Contemporary and classic writers who are the best at making foreign worlds come alive for us. He's written a kind of guide to this, and it's called Around the World in 80 Books. David joins us now for some advice on a few great books that'll take you to Europe, even from your own living room. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, as you write, we can travel to different times and different places in our imaginations with the help of books. During the pandemic, you found yourself doing a lot of reading. Tell us how that became the book you've just published, Around the World in 80 Books. Well, I had had the idea to write a book for general readers about the, the pleasures of reading world literature, which has opened up so much around the world in recent years. We're in a golden age of translation. So many good books are now available. So I was going to go to a bunch of places around the world that I had a reason to go to and then talk about works there. And then came the pandemic and rapid succession plans were shut down in Tokyo and Serbia and places in between. And I thought, oh, I can't do the book. But then I thought, well, I have the books. So uh, it was very therapeutic for me during the height of the pandemic to do this. And, and still now. So I go to Paris with five books in, in my mind. And I start with the, the one that's archetypal for me, Proust, Recherche, the In Search of time, uh, Lost Time, which really introduced Paris to me before I was ever there. And it's still such a vivid portrayal of the city from one perspective. What a blessing to be smart enough to be able to, to read these books and absorb them and then translate them into understanding of a culture you're visiting. I'm not very well read. And the books that I read are kind of pop literature, I would think. Well, tell me what you think, you know, because like when I go to uh, Renaissance Florence and want to learn about Michelangelo, of course, I've read The Agony and the Ecstasy. 
And when I go to Ireland, of course, I've read Trinity by Leon Uris. These are romantic histories, and I find they just give me a wonderful feeling for what happened centuries ago in these fascinating corners. What's your take on just the pop, sort of low-hanging fruit of romantic literature? Well, I feel very strongly that uh, real literature should not just be something that you need a graduate degree from an Ivy League university to appreciate. That, that I think, is very harmful. Uh, and one of, the, one of the things I like about traditional Chinese and Japanese literature is the idea anyone should not only be a reader, but should be a poet. It's something just like breathing. It should be part of your life. And one thing that was important for me with these 80 books is it should include Dante and, and Proust, but it includes detective fiction as well. It includes books that I fell in love with as a child that introduced us to the world. The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle, uh, One Morning in mm. Maine by Robert McCloskey. Uh, I end with Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which was a book I was obsessed by as a teenager and I still teach today. The most, I think the best-selling novel in history, 150 million copies sold. Yeah. And it's a work of great literary value. And look how many people have found it accessible. Oh, yeah. Well, I like to look at it as a, uh, it's a practical investment. It's enjoyable to read a good book, but it's also a practical investment in time. If you are going to Europe and you wish you better understood the struggle of the Irish people, uh, ancient Rome, Victorian England, the Holocaust, the Great Plague, what are some examples of books that you find accessible and at the same time really helpful in giving you an appreciation of something before you travel all the way there? No, that's a really good, really good point. And I should say that accessibility or the usefulness, the, the Roman poet Horace uh, says that poetry should be dulce et utile, sweet and useful. And because he's a great poet, he puts the sweetness first. So for me, accessibility comes from falling in love with the work. Uh, Proust, I always thought, oh, it's this major monument. I'm, I'm going to have to invest my life or get a graduate degree to read the damn book. And, <laughs> and, and then I opened it up at a certain point, And in the first three pages, I just was in love with it. Uh, and if I hadn't fallen in love with it, I would just put it aside and find something else. In terms of finding this, the place also, even works that seem distant can seem close. Uh, for the reading of, about Italy in the plague time, there's no better work than Boccaccio's Decameron. Uh, and if you read the frame story to the Decameron, you'd think you're reading the New York Times uh, circa March of 2020. 100,000 people, 100, people had died. The wealthy flee out of town to shelter in place at their country home and tell stories, while the poor in the city are dying in droves. Some people are socially distant. Other people uh, couldn't care less, and they have parties, and they, even more of them die. But they die either way. So here we have Boccaccio uh, really telling us from, from 700 years ago, this is what it's like. Be aware of this. Prepare for this. Wow, how poignant with what's happening right now. And I, then I follow him with Dona Leone uh, by its cover, uh, one of the Inspector Brunetti mystery stories in Venice, uh, and I'm counterpointing that. And the plague that she sees uh, is first rising sea levels, which is going to drown Venice, and second, tourism, which she describes as being like an epidemic and a plague. So you have these echoes back and forth, literal and metaphorical, from you know something written just a few years ago to something written hundreds of years ago. So you've got, in your book, you've tackled different areas. You've, you've got 16 different destinations. Uh, in, in Europe, you've got London, Paris, Krakow, Venice, uh, Istanbul, and you have a, a collection of works, you know, five works from each of those cities. How does that ensemble tie together? It's, it's almost like a literary itinerary or tour. Very much. Um, a lot of the fun was making these networks, seeing how they're talking to each other. So Virginia Woolf hates her rival, Arnold Bennett, who's a less well-known figure today, but is a brilliant and successful, more successful than she was on the market. But they're both dealing with, for example, the, the traumas of World War I. They both have 
a character who's suffering from shell shock, uh, whose bride is trying to help keep them from suicide. They're rewriting the same stories from completely different uh, positions. So it's also so interesting to see how differently one city looks in, in different writers from the same moment at the same place. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with literary historian David Damrosh, who founded Harvard University's Institute for World Literature. David's with us right now to recommend some of the greatest writing about many places in Europe that he profiles in his book. The book's called Around the World in 80 Books. It's his compilation of 80 exceptional books, classics and contemporary, from authors who shape our idea of the world through literature. David, you know, it's interesting if you think of the value or the importance of this writing. A lot of cities are actually becoming a destination to a certain degree because of a a writer. I mean, so many people go to Dublin because of James Joyce. A lot of people go to the Lakes District because of Beatrix Potter. Um, People go to London on the Sherlock Holmes (laughs) trail because of Arthur Conan Doyle. Right, one of my authors. What's an example that that you would remind us of the importance of an author that is even showing itself today in in people's sightseeing priorities? Well, I'd recommend uh, Istanbul and reading Orhan Pamuk, Nobel Prize winning uh, writer uh, from Istanbul. He's become very, very closely identified with his city. And now a lot of people are going there uh, because of his novels. And in fact, uh, he has a recent novel from a few years back called The Museum of Innocence, which tells the story of a hero who's lost his love and he builds a museum to her based on his own uh, memories and daily life with her. And while Pamuk is writing this novel, he actually built a museum, the Museum of Innocence, and you can go there. And it's really great because if you go with a copy of the novel, uh, that gets you in for free to his museum. So it's a very good marketing device. There's a little ticket and they stamp it. You can only do it once with your copy and only one per person. So if you go with your beloved, you have to take two copies, even better yet. That is great. What a clever idea, and what a way to enhance your experience in Istanbul. And the museum is beautiful. There are signs all around leading you to the museum, and it's, it's, it's a museum to life in the 50s in Istanbul. It's fantastic. You know, the great cities, you, you feature them, London, Paris, Venice, Florence. Um, give me a quick rundown. If I want to understand London better before my trip, what's a book you would recommend I read? Well, I start with Mrs. Dalloway because it's one of my favorites, and it already shows uh, London becoming the global city it is today. But you could also go and have an epilogue about, called the 81st book, and I imagine a number of the great books about London today, uh, Samuel Selvan, The Lonely Londoners, uh, Zadie Smith, White Teeth. You can see London, and so I see, you know, I'm a sort of comparatist. If you read two books, it's, it's four times better than reading one. So Wolf plus one of the contemporaries would be my suggestion. Okay, and how about Florence? Uh, for Florence, you really can't do better than, than Dante and Boccaccio. I'm, I'm very uh, wedded to those. And they're, and they're, again, so accessible and so moving in, in great translations, of which there are, like, more every year. He's been very mm-hmm. lucky in his translators. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with David Damrosh, and his book is Around the World in 80 Books, A Literary Journey. David, we're out of time, but I would just like to close with with something that will inspire people who may never see themselves reading Dante or Boccaccio, that I'd like to hear from you a concrete example of how your travels enjoyed a whole new dimension because you read something that was appropriate before you got there. Well, in Florence, if you go to the Duomo, you'll see these amazing frescoes of of hell and redemption. And you'll see in the side a portrait of Dante himself. He's inscribed in the cathedral. It shows you how to understand that world. And if you go and then are reading, 
You can also go to the, the Paradiso pizza parlor just next to it. And while you're there, you should read some Dante. And if you even have a bilingual translation, you can read just a few lines and just how incredibly accessible he is. At one point, Dante is seeing Beatrice for the first time after many years, uh, and, he, and he, he turns back to Virgil, his guide. He, he says, uh, The way a little child hurries to its mommy. I don't think any vernacular writer had ever used a homely word so seriously before Dante. That is beautiful. And to, to go to Florence and to go to the baptistry and to think, Dante was baptized right here. Yep. And then you look up at that vivid, horrifying hell scene that, that covers half of the ceiling in that baptistry, and you think of what Dante ended up writing and contributing to that culture. It's a fascinating way to give extra dimension to your travels. Absolutely. David Damrash, thank you so much for sharing your passion for literature and reminding us that we can enhance our travel experience by bringing with us a good book. Take care. Thanks. Thank you so much. David tells us how the words of Marco Polo introduced Europe to the East. It's in an extra we've posted with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. We're at 877-333-RICK. German tour guides recommend their favorite day trips from Berlin next. And we'll get an update on life in Mexico City coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Ask an American to describe Germany, and they'll probably mention cuckoo clocks and beer halls with people wearing lederhosen and dirndls. That's probably because those impressions came from American servicemen who were stationed in Bavaria in the South after the Second World War. But while Germany compares in size to the state of Montana, it has about 82 million more inhabitants and a great diversity in its historic cities and countryside. To help us get acquainted with the regions outside of the capital of Berlin, in the northeast of the country, I've asked German tour guides Carolina Marburger, Fabian Ruger, and Holger Zimmer to recommend some great day trips to places that are within easy reach of Berlin. Fabian, Carolina, Holger, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having us. So, did I get that right? Americans kind of think of uh, Bavaria when they think of Germany. Carolina? Yes, I, I agree with you. I think it has a lot to do with GIs that brought these images home. Then I think it also has to do with a lot of Americans having migrated back in the time, mostly from southwest and south Germany. And those that are not sometimes are surprised, well, I'm from Poland. I hear it's like, well, you, it used to be <laughs> when, when your forefathers came, it was German. And the Iron Curtain didn't help us That's at all because also. it has kept the imagery limited. And so a lot of what is behind what used to be the Iron Curtain is not known and felt and emotional charged. So, Holger, when you think, when you meet an American that's talking about Germany and they're talking about Dirndls and Lederhosen, what do you want to tell them? I'd say it's wonderful, but it's not Germany at all. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one part of Germany, which is amazing, you know, with the Alps and stuff. But then, I mean, you know, Germany stretches from the coastline of the of the North Sea and the um, Baltic Sea all the way down to the mountains. So and that's a lot of stuff in between, wonderful lakes and mountains and hills and forests. And, you know, Berlin and the round thing, surrounding is a little bit flat, but there's great lakes around there to explore. So it's nature, but also history. Okay, so Berlin is the new uh, touristic powerhouse in Germany. Uh, you know, our, our heritage, it's mostly Munich and Hofbrauhaus and Oktoberfest. But now... Berlin, statistically, far more popular and, I would say, really more exciting and more rewarding to see. It is, the, it is so much these days in Berlin. You're all from Berlin. Let's say each of you has a guest and they've got a few days, two days, to side trip out. 
I'd like each of you to let me know where you would take them to get a better understanding of Germany outside of Berlin, but not in Bavaria. Fabian. If I have just two days, yeah. I would make sure that I'd go to Dresden. Okay. Um, and to be honest, I also love Erfurt. So Erfurt. Erfurt. E-R-F-U-R-T. Why Erfurt? It was the city where uh, Martin Luther really yeah. studied theology. So you have the whole um, Protestant history connection. And that's five hundred, basically uh, five 500. centuries ago. So the 16th century Erfurt, yeah. And the historic medieval core is incredibly well preserved and restored for, mm-hmm. for a city in that area, largely speaking. So uh, it's got a very different vibe. As it does. From and it's, it's welcoming and, and you feel it's not um, burdened by mass tourism. Why Dresden? Dresden because it's this Baroque pearl on the Elbe. And I think most Americans mostly still associate Dresden with the firebombing mm-hmm. um, of 1945, if they've even heard the name. But Berlin was and Prussia and Dresden was... Dresden the, was the capital of Saxony. Saxony. So this is a reminder that there were a lot of medium-sized uh, countries, serious countries. You know, Prussia, Saxony, Bavaria, these were countries. And in uh, Saxony, ruled from Dresden... You had the the Vettin dynasty. dynasty. And the Vettins, they had their own uh, porcelain? Yes, they had their own porcelain. They uh, invested more of their wealth as a family into art than the Prussians, for instance. That's why today... I wondered why... Because you've just got a relatively... um, I mean, we're not talking the Habsburgs here. We're talking the Vettins, but they've got really beautiful art. But I think that's also because they just realized, you know, being kind of trapped between like the Habsburgs and the Prussians, they're not going to have the means and, uh, you know, to be as glorious and as powerful and as like mean in terms of wars. They just couldn't be there. So they said, well, we focus on, just as Fabian said, we focus on art and science and how can we do it? And so they collected amazing artifacts that you can and now see. science. The- There's a great science gallery in the... Um What's that big complex? Sphinger. The, yeah. the, the, the Sphinger. Sphinger. Yeah. Sphinger. I was blown away by the uh, scientific implements, and it seemed like they were embraced by the king. I mean, we're talking microscopes fit for a king, really jeweled and, I mean, over the top. Carolina, if you had a couple of days uh, and a guest in Berlin, and you've seen everything in Berlin, and you've got a car, where would you go? Uh, it's a tough, tough choice if I would go eastward or, or north. But as we are talking to fight the Bavarian stereotype, which I love. I love Bavarians. <laughs> Please don't get me wrong. I love them dearly. But uh, but I would head north because I have to show them the beautiful Baltic coast. Um, favorite place ever is Rügen Island, the biggest island of Germany. And it has the nicest, beautiful, white sand beaches. And it's it's actually the place where we dip into the sea and it's refreshing yet Yes, the sun is burning, but you're not roasted when you lie on that beach. And it's beautiful thatched houses, and it's really, really particularly beautiful. Don't you have these charming Victorian wind guards on the beach where you can sit there and there's this chair with a big wind shield above you? Uh, yes, yes, those beautiful, that we call Strandkörbe. Yeah, Strandkörbe, so it's beautiful. You can be um, in a miserable yeah. Baltic windstorm on the beautiful white mm-hmm. sandy beach and in the shelter of this a sunbathing chair with a wind with a wind and, guard. And there are those beautiful baths that go back when tourism basically was there invented by the emperor, the pro, like German emperor, brought those first like around 1900. That's when they started to become big among the uh, people of Berlin that for a farther fashionable and fancy outing went up there. And so you have those beautiful wooden bridges, wooden carved houses. So it's this amazingly is beautiful. Rügen, R-U-G-E-N, an island on the north. And a lot of us uh, visit Berlin uh, surprisingly from a cruise ship on the north. 
what is the cruise port in the north? Varnamunda. Varnamunda. And people, they've got the train actually waiting for the cruise ship. And then you sit on that train for, I think, nearly three hours Mm -hmm. to get into Berlin. And then you have six or seven hours in Berlin and you take the three-hour train ride back to your cruise ship. That's a lot of train travel for one day in Berlin. But if all you have is a day and and you've always wanted to see Berlin, it works. I spent the day in Varnamunda, deciding to uh, not go on that long train ride. And I really enjoyed Varnamunda because you had that sort of a Coney Island of the north coast of, yeah. of Germany, and it was nice. Holger, you got two days with a friend in Berlin. Where are you going to take All him? right. One day, I think I would go to Leipzig, which is kind of like southwest of Berlin, maybe one and a half hours max, I think, mm-hmm. on a train. And it is a very amazing city. It's very young, a uh, great student population. It is artsy, so not as, you know, highbrow, but like there's a lot of people. It's, it's kind of still affordable, so a lot of artists are there, and they, they even have like the Neue Leipziger Schule, like a kind of a new school of art being there, being actually quite quite prominent. I think it's, uh, um, you know, Neo Rauch is one of the artists that's like on the international market, one of mm-hmm. those uh, guys that are really uh, earning well with their art. So it's it's full of art, and it's full of life, great museums there. Uh, anthropology and also Leipzig is very important for German history and uh, recent German history for being the city where basically in the whole run-up of the fall of the wall like 1989 in the summer where people are more and more like visually like obviously a discontent with the East German regime they took to the streets and marched every Monday and they really started a huge happening so like we saw these images where like tens of thousands of people are lining the streets of Leipzig saying go home commies you know we had enough we want to travel we want freedom and that so they call it still Heldenstadt city of heroes it's kind of a bit of a pompous title but no there is some truth in it because people were they're shaking off their fear of being spied upon or being put in prison they said listen we had enough it's like in Prague you know jangle their keychains go home and that's really what Leipzig is all about you can really go on a tour there and really explore this history Leipzig when I was in Leipzig I was impressed by the reality that if you're going to bring down the wall and, and, and win your freedom do it during the day and when there is media present because Berlin got all the media and all the images, but it, uh, Leipzig got the uh, short short end of that deal because it wasn't as well documented for the media. But when you go to Leipzig, you see it really was a leader in bringing down the wall in an inspirational way. Uh, also, when you're in Leipzig, you can see the amazing Stasi Museum about the secret police. Die Ecke, yeah. Oh, that's very powerful. And I, I do want to remind people that all of these sites that we're talking about are easy access from Berlin because of Germany's wonderful transportation system. And, and let's just to add briefly on Leipzig, let's not forget it's a musical city, you know. That's we right. We have the likes of Bach. So we if you're have, a Bach you know, fan, that go is the place to go to, yeah. Our guides to what you can find in Germany just beyond Berlin are Holger Zimmer and Carolina Marburger, who live in Berlin, and Fabian Ruger, who was raised in Berlin but now lives just a little up the coast from Portland, Maine. We have web links to our guests in the weekly Travel with Rick Steves show notes. You'll find that at ricksteves.com radio. By the way, our conversation was recorded pre-pandemic. Our phone is 877-333-7425, and Richard's calling from Denver. Thanks, Richard. Hi, Rick. Hey, how are you doing? Very good, thanks. Very good. Do you have a, a comment or a question for our guides? With Dresden, are there museums or sites to see about the firebombing? With the Baltic Sea, are there sites that one could look at? I'm not positive on the geography, but was there testing up in that area with the V1, V2 program? Could we look at Dresden or potential V1, V2 sites for context? 
There is a, uh, on the island of, of uh, Rügen, there is an actual museum to the production of the V2 because that was where the main experimentation and the first production facility was. And so today there is a very good historical documentation on site that gives the whole story of von Braun and the rocket engineers up there. Okay, so Werner von Braun and uh, the, 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 the V2 the V2 production v2 site in Penin. And, and that, was, that was a missile that could drop a bomb. Yes, that was yes, a big it deal. Was, it in was the, used against London. During the and, war, that, and the museum is on Rügen Island up in the north coast, right? Okay. Well, and, and, and the beauty, even though the Allied bombing of Dresden is so crucial, yet in the city they focus more on the beauty of the Baroque era. But a little bit outside is the Military History Museum, which is the most outstanding military history museum I know. Huh. It's a bit different from the average one because it does focus on a cultural history of the war. So it does involve a critical look at what war and weapons do. They will have the V2 and everything that is involved okay. actually mm-hmm. on site and it's done so brilliantly I recommend any tour you can get in there it is vast and spectacular it's really hard to do all of it but it's an incredible site so Whoa. it's one of the, my favorite museums when it comes to World War II outside of Dresden just in it's in Dresden it's in just the, not the in X. the heart of the city and, and what is the name of the museum again? the Military History Museum alright Holger anything to add about World War II sightseeing in these cities mm, not really World War II sites but what comes to mind right at the coast is uh, also on Rügen mm-hmm. is this amazing, like huge, like what is it, 1.5 miles or so block of you know, concrete. And it basically was the, the idea that the Nazis had for mass tourism. So they built I've a seen huge pictures block. of that. Yeah, it's, it's called Tora. Oh, it's, it's a fascist this, nightmare. Yeah, it's like everybody can going to walk in their jackboots up here and lay on the beach for 1.2 hours and then you're going to go back home <laughs> and read. That kind of thing. So really organized wow. early mass tourism. And nowadays it's all going to be transferred into like condominiums and fancy hotels hotel. and stuff. It's yes, it's already hotel. I've, I've just been there a couple of weeks ago and it's quite an amazing building because you really see the changes so and the transitions. Physically, it's perhaps the biggest surviving piece of Nazi architecture. Uh, That's amazing. Uh, Richard, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick, and thanks to your guests. You bet. Happy travels. Tim's calling in from Millica in Minnesota. Tim, thanks for your call. Well, thank you for letting me visit with you for a minute. Yeah, do you have a question about uh, sightseeing from Berlin? Well, more comment. Um, We were there in 2014 on a sabbatical, and we only had a short period of time. You've talked about the German efficiency of of travel, and and for a half day we got directions with train and bus, and we got out to Sassenhausen, um, just north of Berlin. Um, And it was just a really good, um, maybe maybe a little bit easier introduction to the uh, concentration camp settings because it didn't have kind of the, the heavy weight of a Dachau or something like that. But it gave us a, a very good introduction to uh, you know how that whole system developed. And actually the aftermath of what happened there um, when uh, the communist regime took over Berlin was also a very interesting part of that story. So kind of bridged that World War II time as well as the communist occupation or, or influence of, of East Germany. So, Tim, we're talking about Sachsenhausen, and that is uh, in Greater Berlin. Yeah, it's north half, of the an north. half an hour north. Mm-hmm. And that would be uh, a concentration camp uh, option. And when you travel, you know, you can see Mauthausen or the Danube. Yeah. You can see uh, Dachau outside of Munich and uh, Sachsenhausen. How would you guys compare that? I mean, what are the pros and cons of making time to go to Sachsenhausen if you've seen Dachau or Auschwitz or something? My daughter had been to Dachau, and, and she was on this trip with us, too, and she and, and we took her out there. I had a, um, a 12-year-old daughter along, too, and my, my older daughter, Sophie, just said, you know, this wasn't as heavy and depressing 
as going to Dachau. So for my younger daughter, it was an opportunity to get some exposure to that whole story in a way that was introductory, um, that, you know, was more accessible to her without just, you know, hitting her like a ton of bricks. Being overwhelming um, she to got a child, the, she yeah. Got, yeah, she got the full story, um, I think, and, you know, got to see some really interesting aspects as we walked around and toured. So then she, she was, I think she was able to receive it better than maybe um, if we'd gone to one of the other camps first. And Carolina, you, as a guide, you take people to Saxon Yes, yes, I'm there regularly, and I think that many people appreciate it. Uh, for one, of course, the towering image when it comes to concentration camps will always be Auschwitz-Birkenau, and that, of course, is, in a, is a um, is a in, place of, in of extermination Krakow, Poland, in Poland. Yeah. And so this is a labor camp in which still tens of thousands died, and it was also where the inspectorate was. So from actually that location every other camp uh, under Nazi control was administrated. So they try to do a rather good job, I think, in different locations to do a decentralized um, information on it. And so, yes, it can be better bits and pieces to actually digest. I agree. The other thing I thought was interesting is just give you a sense of where did all this come from? Um, So you have a sense of where the origins of of these camps were. This is such an important education when we're traveling and in so many ways history is speaking to us. Tim, thanks so much for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about day trips and side trips from Berlin. And I'd like to finish on just a a natural note. Uh, You go to Bavaria to be at the foothills of the Alps and and to to think of the glories of nature, but it comes with a higher altitude. In the north, you don't have the big mountains. I'd like each of you to share one little natural highlight very quickly about uh, side tripping in this part of Germany. Holger. Yeah, so for me, the, the the region I'd go to most also, like for my own personal, like with the family, it's like go out to the Uckermark, which is like kind of northeast of Berlin. And it's an area very nicely, kind of graciously kind of gliding with like some hills, not very high hills, you know, and, and lots of forest and most amazing lakes. So it's good to go out there on a sunny day, just, you know, bring a towel and have a great swim and have a sausage afterwards and then go back to Berlin. A towel, a swim and a sausage. That's it. Spoken <laughs> like a true German. And the name of that is? Uh, the Uckermark is the region, so Uckermark. there's lots of great lakes. Oh. Fabian? I love the Sächsische Schweiz, which is just southeast of Dresden. Say, so, wait, wait, say that word again. Oh, the Sächsische Schweiz. So that would translate into the Saxon Switzerland. Ah, right. Uh, because there's a slightly mountainous region southeast uh, of Dresden, and it really looks a little bit like Monument Valley with trees on top, and the Elbe River is flowing between these uh, nice. big rocks. And on one of them is also uh, to add insult to injury, if you will, this beautiful castle uh, called Königstein, the King's Rock, and it was the uh, residence of the King of Saxony, and then later on also a prison. It was a fortress taken by Napoleon, the only one who ever took it. And it's, so it's, it's an amazing site to visit and beautiful sights from And there. probably the number one side trip from the city of Dresden. Yeah. And Carolina? For me, it would be, as these are now taken, I also definitely would uh, advise to people to come to the Harz Mountains, which is, for one, and much of it is in the east, even though it is on the former border. That is where you have the Brocken, where the famous witches always gathered uh, on the night that the witches gather, and the Thuringian Forest, because there is more than just the Black Forest. There is a lot of forest. We are covered a third. Ah, a little bit of northern pride here. So we always talk about the Black Forest. (laughs) So we're talking about the Harz Mountains, H-A-R-T-Z. H-A-R-Z. H-A-R-Z Mountains the Hartz Mountains in, in north of Germany. Carolina Marburger, Fabian Reuger, Holger Zimmer, danke sehr. This is very interesting and very helpful for our travel dreams. <laughs> Vielen Dank. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's one of the biggest cities in the world, 
and one of the oldest in the Americas. We'll find out what's new in Mexico City next. We're glad you came along today. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's the oldest capital in the Americas, and the largest city in North America, and it's not that far away. Mexico City has long been a cultural beacon for the rest of Latin America, but for many from the United States, we've avoided it in favor of the sunny seaside resorts that line the shores of Mexico. What does the big city offer to encourage us to try it out instead of spending more time at the beach? For a look at what we can discover in Mexico City today, we're joined by a New Yorker who moved there more than 30 years ago. David Lita joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves for a closer look at the neighborhoods and attractions of the Mexico City that he's proud to call home. David, thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me, Rick. So, David, set the scene. Mexico City is huge. It's a cultural center. It's, what, 7,000 feet high? One of the most striking things I can remember in all my travels is flying into Mexico City at night and seeing the lights of the city just blanket the the landscape for as far as you can see. It is one of the biggest cities in the Western Hemisphere. You know, there are other cities that have greater population density, but greater Mexico City, which includes parts of Mexico State, has more than 20 million people. More than 20 million people. I mean... Obviously, that's twice as many people as in a lot of major countries. And, you know, right. we're, we're from the English-speaking Western Hemisphere, but it's important to think of Mexico City in the perspective of Spanish-speaking Western Hemisphere. It's, it's like slam dunk, the cultural capital for people in Latin America. You know, it's interesting that you say that. At this point, I've had the luck to be able to travel to a lot of cities in South America, and I'm not taking anything away from them. But none of them has made me feel like I made a mistake by moving to Mexico City. I love Rio. I love Sao Paulo. I really like Bogota, um, Buenos Aires. But none of them is as culturally diverse and as fascinating to me as Mexico City. And Mexico City is quite a progressive city compared to a lot of American standards. You know, when you say progressive, like between... 2006 and 2012, we had a mayor that really was, by my lights, progressive. He legalized first-term abortion, which was almost unheard of in Latin America, made gay marriage legal, and did a lot of work to make transportation a little more fluid than it usually is, Mm -hmm. like bike lanes and shared bike programs, the expansion of what's called the Metro bus, which is an alternative form of mass transit. I really like what he did for the city. You know, I always am fascinated by how a big country looks at its dominant city. You know, the famous New Yorker map, and you got the New York perspective of people in the provinces, you know, and Paris is, of course, the same way. How do people view Mexico City from the rest of Mexico, and how does Mexico City view well, the rest of the country? it's actually very similar, Rick, to the way, you know, the relationship between Paris and France or New York and uh, the United States. People who live in the provinces are very wary and skeptical of people from Mexico City. We, we have a bad reputation in the rest of the country. And, you know, after living in Mexico City, almost anywhere else in the world seems small. Even Guadalajara, which has 6 million people, or Monterrey, which has about 5 million people, compared to Mexico City, they seem like small cities. And I think 
living in a city that big changes your perspective. Mm. You know, when I think about going to a megapolis in Latin America, I got to say I've got concerns about my safety from, uh, you know, getting mugged or pickpocketed or uh, my health concerns and so on. Give us a quick rundown on concerns that an American might have to to be safe in Mexico City and to be to stay healthy. Well, back in the 90s, you know, I'm going back almost 20 years, there was a crime problem. It was significant. But things have really been cleaned up now. Um, if you look at statistics, worldwide statistics, you're a lot more likely to be the victim of a crime per capita in many cities in the United States than you are in Mexico City. Hmm. You know, if you're in New Orleans or Baltimore or Philadelphia or St. Louis or, you know, Washington, D.C., you're much more likely to be robbed, carjacked, murdered. Um, Mexico City is actually, considering how big it is, it's actually a very safe place. And the other thing that I think is really important to point out, Rick, if you're a tourist, most of the places that you want to see, I mean, none of them are, are high crime areas. There are like parts of the city that I wouldn't encourage people to go to, like, I guess, any big city in the world. But a tourist wouldn't have much reason for going to those at all. Right. So if I, I mean, I, I had a great meal with you a few years ago when I was in Mexico City. And if I was going to visit you now and, you know, crash at your place and spend a couple of days out and about just exploring, what advice would you give me just to watch out for, just to be a little street savvy? Well, first of all, the neighborhood that I live in and the neighborhood where we had our meal, Rick, you don't even have to take precautions. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very safe area. But I would say like in any big city and even some small cities, you just sort of be aware of your surroundings. Right. Just watch where you're going. And, you know, I take tourists around the city. They're pulling out their phones and taking pictures. I've never felt like, uh-oh, this is a dangerous situation. I just don't think it's such an issue. My son has lived in Colombia, and he's he doesn't take his phone out in most of the city. So it's just... Is that there's, right? There's certain things you don't show off when you're on the streets. But uh, where you go, where the tourists go in Mexico City, I guess that's not a concern. So that's good yeah, news. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm knocking wood or knocking my head, which is what Mexicans do when we can't find a piece of wood. Uh, I've never had a problem of any kind like that with any tour I've done. I think it's a very safe place. David Lita is our guide to Mexico City, which he's called home now for more than 30 years. His website has information on his themed neighborhood tours in Mexico City and on the books he's written in both English and Spanish. They provide insights into Mexican culture and how it sometimes clashes with the United States. It's at davidlita.com, spelled L-I-D-A. David, a lot of people say Mexico City is, has a sort of a European vibe compared to small towns in the countryside. But when I go to Mexico City, it's pretty clear to me, we Americans kind of go to the la-la land of the city, you know, the, the Zona Rosa and the historical center where there's nice restaurants and so on. But you also got to remember 9 million people in Mexico City proper, 20 million plus in the in the metro area. Uh, the real essence of Mexico is this vast population. Give us a sense of how we can really understand what is inherently Mexican about Mexico City and, and what is this human foundation that the city sits on? Well, that's a great question, Rick. And, and there's no like easy way to answer that. But I would tell you, for example, when I take people around, I really try to give them some context. 
especially in the Centro Histórico, which is the oldest part of the city, there are some streets where you're almost overwhelmed by the amount of people selling stuff on the street. More than half of the working population of Mexico City makes its living from the informal economy. People who sell things on the street, valet parking attendants, people who work as, who clean houses, uh, none of them are on an official payroll. They're just getting by so as let, best as they can. Let's just yeah. think about the, that for a moment. You, you said half of the people in Mexico City earn their living in the informal economy. Half the working population. It's amazing. I, I understand 1% of, of Mexico controls 40% of its wealth. So they've got a, a gap between rich and poor that's even more obscene than in, here in the United States. But the, right. the place we are inclined to ignore as tourists is that reality of the informal economy and the half of the people that are trying to live on $5 of wages a day. I mean, we, ha- we used to have dime stores. In Mexico City, now you've got stalls out in the streets that are actually nickel stores. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it is kind of amazing that way that you do have those enormous contrasts. Um, Some of the people who hire me to take them around, like they're staying in the most expensive hotels in the city, but they want me to take them to eat tacos on the street, which costs, you know, between 50 cents and a dollar a piece. And, And that's some of the best food in Mexico. You know, it, it, it's it's very much... Um, there's a parallel world. There's, there's, there's a parallel world. I was someplace recently, it was Cuba, and there's two different currencies. And the tourist has one currency, and the local people have the other currency. And the average tourist doesn't even know there's two different currencies. Uh, it's totally parallel economies. And I think you, you mentioned there's a couple hundred Starbucks in town, and there's five million people that would never in their life would buy a Starbucks. Um, so exactly. you wrote an article, David, called Improvising Survival. It was the most fascinating thing. And you took us to a flea market in a very poor district and talked yeah. about that scene. Take us into that market right now. You're, you're so good at writing and you're a great tour guide. What would that like to, to go to that flea market, to browse around? Well, I'm going to ask your listeners to please imagine stores like TJ Maxx or Marshalls or those stores that sell clothing from last year or maybe the year before, a couple of seasons ago, that is at a discount. A year later, two years later, the clothes that haven't sold, they get sold in bulk, probably by weight, to Mexico. And these markets, they're set up at a different neighborhood every day, mostly in poor parts of town. And people buy these clothes for, you know, pennies might be an exaggeration, but we're not going much farther than that. You, you know, they're, they're um, okay, stalls that are set up on the street underneath like pink tarpaulin shelters. And the clothes are literally piled. There's just these enormous piles that you have to pick through. Our, our school buses that are retired end up down south of the border, and even our clothes that don't sell end up south right. of the border. And I've been to places in the developing world where they really are sold by the weight, and people just gather yeah. up a bunch of old socks and T-shirts, and they're walking around with T-shirts you know, that mean something to somebody in Minnesota or New York, and they're just wearing this T-shirt because it cost them 50 cents. That's kind of the reality on this planet. But, you know, like, Rick, in that article, when I, when I described the market— I talked to a woman who uh, works as a nurse, but, you know, unfortunately, nurses make very little money in Mexico, but 
she told me that she'd been going to that market for more than 20 years and her clothed her entire family because she could find stuff for a dollar or two or, you know, maybe five bucks. Oh, I'm sure that's a uh, blessing. And, and, and that market's a blessing to people who exactly. are in a normal economy. Former New Yorker David Lita fell in love with Mexico City when he first arrived and has made it his home ever since. He's updating us on what makes the Mexican capital unique and what's new there after over two years of weathering the pandemic. We have links to his earlier appearances with us with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. David, you wrote that uh, it occurs to me that all of us who write about cities, consciously or not, are playing against time, frantically trying to document something before it vanishes. You've been writing about Mexico City now for several decades. Mexico City is changing, and, and a lot of the, uh, the charm and the character is being pushed out by modern realities. How would you assess the, the, the change in the character of uh, the real Mexico that you know and love in the last 20 years? Well, you know, Mexico City is becoming a much more international place than it was when I got there. This is a very bourgeois pleasure, Rick, but I can find a bagel in Mexico City almost as good as in New York. I can find a croissant as good as I've eaten in Paris. And so that's a, a really nice thing. Now, and, and you even, excuse me, but you even wrote that when you first came to Mexico City, there, there really was no coffee. You'd get, you'd get hot water and Nescafe or even a Coca-Cola for breakfast, but they didn't really have coffee. And now we've got this, um, you know, this trendy scene. Literally, when I got to Mexico City, you could count on the fingers of one hand places that would sell you a good cup of coffee. After Starbucks came in, when the Mexicans realized how much they were charging for a cup of coffee, a lot of enterprising Mexicans opened up cafes. So now there's like stiff competition for Starbucks with very, very good Mexican coffee. So we're talking about how Mexico is changing with David Lida. I was kind of saddened, David, to read uh, in your article about how the corner grocery store, which used to be, you know, just kind of a place where people go for their fruits and vegetables and so on, are being replaced by chain convenience stores where there's almost nothing of nutritional value. And it almost makes me think that the poor neighborhoods are becoming uh, good food deserts. Well, that's not precisely true, Rick, because even in the poorest neighborhoods, they have what's called a tianguis. These are markets on wheels that come to your neighborhood once a week, and they sell really good fruits and vegetables, eggs, meat, fish, chicken, but those particular convenience stores are, to me, a scourge. I mean, they're, they're just selling 15 different sizes of bags of potato chips, all the different kinds of Coca-Cola. And in those stores, you, you're absolutely right. You cannot get anything of nutritional value. And diabetes is becoming endemic in Mexico. There's a lot of consequences to those kind of changes. It's not like the other food is not available. But it's cheaper to buy a Coca-Cola than a bottle of water in Mexico City. That's, you know, it's an, it's an observation I have in the United States as well. If you go to, you know, less affluent corners of our country, you step into a convenience store and, and you look what's on the racks and it's all processed food and there's, there's nothing right. but sugary drinks and it's just all, you know, soda pop. And 
you just kind of think, wow, it's hard to get any good nutrition here if you don't know where to go. On the other hand, thank goodness they've got the the markets on wheels. I was mentioning my son in, in Colombia, like anywhere in Latin America, if you wake up in the morning, you'll hear the happy sounds of the, the man who's got a fruit cart going, uh, papaya, papaya. And yeah. he loves to talk yeah. about that, papaya, papaya. You get these beautiful opportunities to connect with the fresh produce that way. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with David Lida. David's website is davidlida.com. And David, we're out of time, but I just, for me, it's so great to have you on and to remind people that we can connect with the soul of Mexico City. Of course, we're going to see the famous sites, but we've got to get in there and connect with the people. And in Mexico City, it's the, the working class, the poor people, that is where you feel the soul of Mexico City. Give us one encounter with... Um, with one person that you've had that you've enjoyed writing about that might inspire us to get out there and and really connect? Well, I remember not that long ago. You know, there are these guys that wandered through the streets with a little shoeshine kit. One of them walked by a place where I was having a coffee, and I thought, you know, my shoes needed a shine, so I, I asked him if he would do mine. And he just said, you know, not only did a great job shining the shoes, he gave me like words, inspiring words, you know, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he he tried to leave me with some kind of inspirational message. And I just thought, this is an encounter with a human being. And he left me, you know, feeling extremely lucky. I remember you wrote about that. It was like you got spiritual inspiration from the man who shined your shoes. And you realized this is more than just uh, giving a a guy in the informal economy, a little gig, you were connecting. You know, it's much more, those sort of encounters are much more human than the United States, I would say. Oh, this is, you know, it's always so good to talk to you, David, and to remind our listeners that Mexico City is uh, offering a big welcome. David Lita, thanks for joining us, and I'll look forward to seeing you next time I'm in Mexico City. I'll be waiting for you, Rick. Thank you so much for inviting me again, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at Feature Story News in New York for their help this week. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Enjoy Europe on a Rick Steves bus tour. Our bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and dozens of exciting itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.